There's two two things I want to draw our attention to as we look at chapter 12 of 12, 19. There's kind of two sections here. The first is this rejoicing in heaven, uh, the fourfold sort of hallelujah and the proclamation of God's salvation, that God has dealt with justice uh, against evil. And, and we talked about the great prostitute, this symbol of sort of world societies and uh, that, that propel or present immorality, that people are enticed by this. And of course, the, the second part that we saw when we looked at Babylon was uh, the, the martyrdom, the murder of the saints. And look at verse 2, speaking about God. His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's kind of the first part is this hallelujah and then this invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb in verses 6 to 10. And then after that, awesome kind of proclamation of what God has done and this invitation to the supper, we get a return to the scene of Jesus on the white horse. Thank you, Kim. I'm switching back. Ta-da. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Oh, mute that guy. There we are. Got it. Thanks, Brian. So first we get this rejoicing in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb, to about verse 10. And then if you look at verses 11 to the end of the chapter, we didn't read it all, is all about Jesus uh, defeating evil, him coming as the rider on the white horse, and, and sort of the display of God's power and glory in judgment. And so we, we start with this great multitude, back in chapter 19, back at verse 1, this great multitude. We've seen multitudes a few times, and often it's sort of representing every nation and here they're standing before God's throne and they are worshiping, they're praising God for his justice. Once again, in destroying the, the source of corruption and evil that has plagued God's cosmos. I don't know about you, but I mentioned it, I think maybe last week or the week before, but I just feel uh, more than ever in my life, I'm aware of evil in the world. That there's, there's evil, not just people making poor decisions, but there are evil influences in the world. And we see that in people individually, but you also see that in whole systems of how things are sort of designed to function, and it's not good. And we are just aware of that. We, you're, I mean, if you've got breakdown in your families, you're aware of the presence of evil at work in your life. If you're aware of issues in kind of broader sense, culturally or societally, we just go, man, that is not that is just not good. Whatever is sort of prompting that, and Revelation's good at revealing what's behind the scenes. We could say, well, it's the government's fault, or it's this person's fault in my life, and they're evil. But behind that, there are other forces at work that uh, promote chaos in the world, that want to see God's good creation destroyed, and see things destroyed, and see things undone that God would want to set up as good. And so there's a real spiritual warfare going on, a real battle going on. And Revelation is telling us, at the end of it all, God will defeat all of that evil. He will reign supreme over it all. He will judge it. And so, in response, we get this hallelujah sort of chorus from those in heaven, this proclamation that what God has done is good. 
he has uh, dealt justly with the world. He's the only one that can deal justly with the world. And then we get this awesome invitation. The praise culminates in verses 7 and 8 with the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We celebrated Rowan's sixth birthday this weekend. He's six tomorrow. But we had a, uh, it wasn't a marriage supper. It was a birthday brunch. It was the birthday brunch of the boy, as opposed to the marriage supper of the lamb. But it was a joyful thing. You know, having a meal together is almost the penultimate sort of sign of fellowship, of life, of love together with family or with friends. And he looked forward to having the brunch almost as much as I, maybe, well, I don't know. I'd have to ask him almost as much as he enjoyed his presence, but we'll, I don't, he'd probably answer that question better than I would. But he was quite excited to have grandma and grandpa particularly over for the brunch. And of course, we made waffles. So that didn't, that didn't hurt either. That was a big, that was a big hit. We get here at the culmination of praise, an invitation to a meal. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Blessed are those invited, verse 9, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's this picture of this amazing banquet between God and his people. And that theme of God wanting to eat with people is echoed all throughout the Bible. And it centers often around Israel's hopes for the Messiah. And I want to read, just to get a sense of, of this idea of the marriage of the Lamb, of the bride coming and marrying the groom, of the church coming to marry Jesus. That's what this is about. And this invitation to the wedding banquet. To get a sense of sort of the depth and history of that idea, I want to read a few passages from the Old Testament. And just let this, it's really rich imagery, let this sort of, uh, sort of, just kind of wash over you as you think about the picture that this paints for us. From Isaiah 25, 6 and 8, first off. And this is a, a Isaiah looking ahead to what God would do in redeeming and bringing his people together. It's this beautiful picture and so many echoes through Revelation. This is Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. You get the picture of just this as the best meal ever. (laughs) And God has prepared it. For all peoples, there's an invitation for the nations to come. So the first thing is this beautiful feasting. And then then verse 7, Isaiah 25, verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering of, that has cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. There's a sense of God spreading this beautiful banquet and then swallowing up the veil of death and the veil of darkness that is surrounding his creation. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. We get that same image here coming up at the end of Revelation. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isn't that awesome? This picture in Isaiah of this beautiful feast spread that God prepares for his people. 
him dealing with the evil in the world, dealing with the injustice in the world, and then wiping the tears from the eyes of those who follow him, the sense of renewal and healing that we long for, that we see in our lives here and now, but we look forward to it ultimately coming to pass when Jesus comes again. But this idea of God preparing this meal, just this wonderful, rich image. And we see it again, actually further back in Exodus 24. I've been reading through, uh, I've got a sort of a, a read through the Bible plan in a, in a Bible that I have. And, and so recently went through Exodus. And this, this passage really struck out to me again, stuck out to me again. Uh, Exodus 24, again, this idea of God eating with his people. Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. This is at Mount Sinai, as they are learning who God is and encountering him and his awesome presence. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And then this awesome phrase, they beheld God and ate and drank. What is the pinnacle of being and dwelling in God's presence? It's to eat and drink with him. God doesn't strike them down. He invites them to this meal. I have a quote on my wall that kind of captures this. It's from Tim Chester in a book he wrote called A Meal with Jesus, and it says this, God created the world so we might eat with him. The food we consume, the table around which we sit, the companions gathered with us have as their end our communion with one another and with God. We proclaim Christ in mission so that others might hear the invitation to join the feast. Why do we do mission? Why do we do evangelism? Why do we do outreach? To invite a hungry world to come to the feast of God. That's why we come. That's why we do it. And perhaps most significantly, we anticipate that great feast, that great meal, when we come to this table as a church. This idea of God eating in fellowship and welcome and loving people is echoed in this meal. I mean, we call it communion for a reason. Commune means to intimately participate in one another, to fellowship with each other. There's a sense of personal and spiritual intimacy. And so we commune with God through a meal. This is what Jesus ordains and establishes for his church. And it makes perfect sense. We'll see it ultimately concluded at the end of time. But we see echoes of that from Exodus through Isaiah, through the Gospels at the, at the Last Supper, and now lived out in the life of the church. We eat with Jesus, we could say, to remember. We often say, do this in remembrance of me, as in remember, you know, mentally. <laughs> Bring to mind what he has done. But I also like to think of it as we get remembered, as in when we go through life, sometimes we get a bit dismembered, whether it's from sin, whether it's from dealing with just the issues and pressures in life. Sometimes it feels like we are coming apart. We become dismembered. 
But when we come to Jesus, and perhaps specifically when we come to this table, we don't just remember. We are remembered. We are put back together again. And of course, how much more true is that when Jesus says, we as the church individually now become the body of Christ. And when we share in a meal of fellowship together, we as the church individuals become remembered together into one body. That's why this meal becomes the center point of so much of our worship. It's at this place that we celebrate all that Jesus has done for us through his death and his resurrection, but it's this constant reminder of being made one in him. And it's also the reminder that there will be a day where we sit down with him in glory at that great wedding supper of the Lamb. Each time we eat this meal, we look forward to that day. And in those days where you get to sit down with family or sit down with a dear friend, and maybe it's a Maybe the meal is lavish, or maybe it's peanut butter and jam sandwiches, whatever it is. When there's the sense of community and fellowship together, that meal becomes like, a, like an appetizer of the meal that's to come, where our hearts swell with longing and with love for the person across the table. And that, that echoes what God has in store for us to come to his table. And I just want to say this morning, that all of us are invited to that table. I have a seat at that table because of what Jesus has done in my life. Because I received his salvation. It's a, it's a work of God's grace, a sheer gift that I received by faith that he has rescued me from my sin, rescued me from death. And now I am invited to come to the table. And I hope that each of you have responded to that invitation to come to the table. Both this table this morning by saying, yes, Lord, I believe, I repent of my sins. I choose you as my Lord and Savior. Become the Lord of my life. To look forward to this table, but also ultimately that table that we will share with him when he comes again. It's this beautiful image. And then the rest of the chapter sort of shifts tones and we get Jesus again as sort of the conquering victor, Jesus on the white horse. Verse 11 says, I saw heaven opened and a white horse and one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's the only one that can do that with righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And it goes on to describe him. Verse 13 uh, talks about, where is it now? He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some manuscripts have sprinkled with blood. Jesus comes to the battle already bloody. Did you notice? He's already bloodied when he gets to that battle. Could it be that the blood is his own? Could be. Could it be that it's because he's already victorious before the battle even takes place? I think so. He comes as the reigning king. And in verse 14, 15, we didn't read it, but the, there's a few descriptions of who Jesus is that are just filled again with lots of meaning from the Old Testament. 
verse 15, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. That's, uh, that's Psalm 2, ruler of the nations and rod of iron. And then it says, He'll rule them, uh, he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That's Isaiah 63. God's divine warrior treading the winepress. And then, of course, the sword that he wields with his mouth. This is the divine word that brings justice. Notice Jesus doesn't come with a sword in his hand. He comes already bloodied to the final battle, already victorious, and the sword comes out of his mouth. It's the divine justice that only the Son of God can speak and bring to pass in the world. And he's going to bring that justice to bear on those who perpetuate evil. The sword that comes out of his mouth is also from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 49. And so Jesus invites those who repent and believe to come to this marriage supper of the Lamb, but we also see him executing his righteous justice against evil in the world. All those who participated in uh, blaspheming God and destroying God, those who wouldn't repent, seeking to destroy what God would do, they, it's like they meet the destruction that they themselves sought. And then in contrast to this beautiful banquet, we actually get uh, a different summons in verses 17 to 21. I'm not going to read it all, but there's actually a summons to the birds of prey to a different sort of feast. And it's on those who have been killed because of their evil that they perpetuated. And so you get this beautiful feast and you get kind of this grotesque feast. And that, these passages have been interpreted in lots of different ways, but I think the key for us, there's this central promise that just rings true, is that Jesus will ultimately, with his justice, come to root out evil once and for all. And that's where I put my hope. Jesus will deal with the evil in the world. And those who have accepted his grace and forgiveness are invited to this great victory banquet, this marriage supper of the Lamb. How does this sort of impact our lives for today? We kind of walked through the chapter. I think perhaps the first thing for me is, is just to remind us that the return of Jesus is really sort of the central hope of the New Testament. You know, his coming will be sudden. It will be personal. It will be bodily. He's actually going to show up. It's not just sort of a metaphor for something else. He's actually going to show up. It's actually really him. And it's going to be visible to the world, and he'll come again to reign in power as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Um, there's a common phrase we use, and some people use it more than others, but we'll talk about, you know, the Lord is coming soon. And that's true. The Lord is coming soon. But the church has, for 2,000 years, said the Lord is coming soon. It doesn't just mean, you know, okay, maybe this decade or next decade. It means because of the victory of the cross, because the resurrection, which was to happen at the end of time, has started early in Jesus, we are in the end times now. We've been in end times for 2,000 years, folks. It's been the end times because the victory's been won. And now we await his return, um, but we don't sort of get lost in trying to speculate over I mean, remember? Oh, my goodness. Do you remember? I remember it was in the 90s. He was coming in the year 2000. He was coming. And the Y2K computers were going to happen too, right? That was all happening. And then 2012, the Mayan calendar, it's, he's coming. It's happening. Oh, good grief. God has not revealed 
the time of Christ's return. He just hasn't. It's just, it's just not a key thing to get lost about. If you're sitting there trying to plan out a date, like he's coming in seven years, so I better do this and this before he shows up, just stop. You don't need to. It's not really the point. Obsessing over those things, I think, can actually be rather fruitless, and I think it actually leads to sort of an unbiblical speculation. There isn't really a call for us to sort of plot out, you know, he's coming in 25 years or 23 years or whatever. Knowing that Jesus is coming soon, whether that's tomorrow or in 50 years or in 100 years, the point is that that's meant to motivate us to live with expectancy for today. It's meant to cause us to want to seek to live a holy life today so that when he does show up, I'm found in him. I've been living for him in anticipation of when he comes. Listen to Titus 2. 12 to 13, it says this. It kind of brings these ideas together really well. He says, followers of Christ, we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and we seek to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's the call for us, to live that today. While we await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus says, Because we're waiting for him, what do we do? We start living for him today. We put aside sin. We put aside, what does he say? Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It's just this sense of because I know the future is secure in Jesus, I just live for him for today. Whether he comes in my lifetime or not, that doesn't really matter. The point is, am I faithful with the life he's given me? And I I live that for him here and now. Does that make sense? I think it's really, it's just really, really practical. 1 John 3, 2, and I'm going to end here with, with this. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. This is call for us in the Bible to know he is coming. We are held firm in him, but that doesn't mean we don't engage with the world. It doesn't mean we sort of withdraw from life. In fact, we sort of plunge headlong into living for him and renouncing what's evil and living for the good, knowing the best is yet to come. And the solution for our present suffering is found ultimately in Jesus. And when he comes again, we will be with him. And the call for us then is to live on mission now and inviting people to a new life of repentance and hope in Jesus, to invite them to come to the marriage feast, that they'll be part of that wedding banquet. I wanted to end with this last verse of this hymn. This is a, a, a Getty hymn called Beneath the Cross, and it mentions being the bride. I just really like this picture it it paints for us. It says, Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown, we follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us to be his perfect bride. Right? We look forward to that. Beneath the cross of Jesus, we will gladly live our lives. It's a call to live for him today as we look forward to what will come. Amen?
Let's pray together, and then we're going to come to this table. Lord, we thank you so much for the promise of your return. Lord, we look forward to that day. We set our hope knowing that you will deal with the evil and the nonsense in our world that just can get us down. Uh, Lord, you'll deal with that. You call us to live faithfully for you as we look forward to your return. And so, God, I just pray over those that are listening today, those that are here in the service or listening online, that you would help us to renounce ungodliness. Help us to live a disciplined, uh, righteous, and godly life. Lord, to the glory of your holy name, that you would help us to put aside uh, vain ambition, Lord, the stuff that, that puts us more in line with following Babylon than it does following you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to engage well with the life you've given us, to love the people around us, to point them to you, God, by the way we live our lives, by the words we speak, that many would come to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb when you come again in glory. Lord, we look forward to that day, and we live that out now by coming to this table. And as we eat and drink at this table, Lord, would you remember us as we remember your death and resurrection for us. Thank you, God. Uh, Bless this table, we pray in your name. Amen.